Hey, good morning. Good to see you. Would you grab your Bible? Open to Psalm 42. And once you've opened there, would you stand up as we give reverence to the reading of God's Word? So Psalm 42, stand as we read. As a deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise and a multitude-keeping festival. But why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, Yahweh commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversary taunts me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Father, I thank you for Difficult subjects, texts. I pray, Lord, that we would be balanced in our understanding of Scripture, of what you have said. I pray that we would be balanced in our approach to people. I pray that because of Scripture this day, Lord, we would be being equipped for life, to live it fully with both joy and sorrow, happiness and hard times, Lord God. So equip your saints this day, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. We're doing a series right now, if you're new, it's called The Dirty Dozen. Um, We took 12 topics and we have been moving our way through them. Today we're doing depression. So if you're new here today, I hope this did not happen to you. I hope someone didn't say to you, hey, my church is doing this series and next week is depression, you should come. (laughs) If they did, my apologies, you're welcome. We're glad you're here. And here's what I want you to know, and more importantly, here's what I want us to know. Okay? Tell me what all these people from the Bible have in common. Elijah. Moses, Solomon, Jonah, David, Paul, Jesus. What do they all have in common? They went through times of really desperate depression, okay? So those are the heroes of the faith right there. Jesus, God incarnate. So there is a stigma, I think, inside of church when it comes to depression Because we have this idea in our head that this is the way Christians are always supposed to look. All right? I have the picture right here. You can see it. Right? So based on this, who's the unbeliever? Right? Grandpa. Or whatever. I don't know if it's the wife. I don't know who that is. But that dude, right? That person is the unbeliever. Everyone that's a believer, man, we're jack in the box, pasted on, smiley face. You can turn that off. Thank you. I like eyes right here. 
So there is this kind of idea inside of church where, hmm, you know, it's, it's, we're supposed to be this way. We're always supposed to have a smile pasted on our face. The only problem with that is, guess what? The Bible. Like the Bible talks about depressed people. And so probably if they're in the Bible, guess what? They're in church with us today, right here. Probably at some point, you might go through it as well. So the Bible's very, very honest. And I think where we live as a culture right now, we have to be honest that things are changing. And I've given you this statistic. If you took your situation, your socioeconomic status, your education, your DNA, and you had the exact same person in the 1960s, that person would be 10 times less likely to be depressed. So something's happening in our country, right? The age where depression starts used to be 29 in 1960. Now it's 14 and a half. So it's creeping younger and younger, and it's widening and widening. If you just went back to the 1990s, from the 1990s till today, we have four times as many antidepressants being prescribed in America. So there is this, hey, depression's here. It's in the Bible. What are we going to do about it? We got to stop the stigma that we have on it, I think, number one. That's our number one mistake. Number two mistake is this, as believers. We give very simple answers to an extremely complex problem. So a depressed person, if you've ever been depressed in church, someone will say this to you. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Has that ever happened to you when you're down? What do you feel like doing to that person? Hugging them very hard. Ah! Right? So we give these flat answers. Guess who said rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice? The guy that said it is the Apostle Paul. Do you know what else he said? 2 Corinthians 1.8, I am despairing of life itself. So yeah, Paul, yeah, there are times when he rejoiced, no doubt, and he could rejoice, but there are other times he says, life is so overwhelming to me. My circumstances are so difficult that I want to die. That's 2 Corinthians 1.8. So as believers, what we have to do is we have to be very careful of like attaching our, all of our doctrine to one thing. We have to read the entirety of Scripture and say, what does it say? What is everything? have to say about this subject. So that's what we're going to try to do. Get rid of that simple answer thing. Third mistake we make is this. All depression is spiritual. That if you're depressed, it must be a demon or it's Satan. And so that person fumbles for their Benny Hinn signature series, anointing oil. They pull it out. They slap it on your forehead and they cast the demon out of you. You know what the problem with that is? The Bible. Because the Bible gives us a bunch of different reasons why people get depressed, and we'll look at those, all right? So here's my history. I'm not prone to depression. I don't have high highs, and because of that, I don't have low lows. I'm pretty even, you know, engineer kind of, okay, let's look at this logically. I tend towards that way. Um, I have had seasons, and we'll talk about some of those. But in my family, depression is rampant, all right? So my mom went through some really dark depression. My siblings at times They would get depressed, like they would sleep 18 to 20 hours a day. And it did not matter what I did or tried to get them excited about or do it, they just would not get up. They would get up, eat, go back to sleep, just exhausted. This would go on sometimes for weeks, just that kind of deep depression. I have an aunt. Um, She's been institutionalized since she was a young lady because of the danger she is to herself in depression and because of some other stuff. So, So it's in my family. And my mom, when she went through her darkest time, I was actually at Oregon State, and I would come down for Christmas and spring break, and I worried about her. I'm like, Mom, what's going on? What are you doing? Here's what she told me. She goes, this is all I can do right now. I just live in the book of Psalms. Like, I just read psalm after psalm after psalm after psalm, which I think is a good, good initial idea. When we talk about depression, start reading in the book of Psalms. Just, Lord, what's going on? Because you have chapters like chapter 42 where people pour out themselves. And we have to be very careful of this, very careful of, this is the silver bullet. All depression is because of this. And everyone does it. The biologist says, depression is chemical. So let's fix the chemistry in your brain. The moralist says, it's sin, so let's take care of guilt and sin in your life. The psychologist says, no, you don't know how to cope, so I'm going to give you some tools to cope. And the supernaturalist says, no, it's a demon. Let's cast the demon out. And I would say it's probably all the above. And you have to ask this question. Here's the number one question you need to ask. 
people that are depressed or yourself when you get depressed, it's verse five of Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? What's going on? Soul. The word there is nefesh in the Greek. When Adam is made, he is called a living nefesh. It speaks of our entirety of life. It's not just the eternal part of us. It's the nefesh. Soul, life, what's going on with you? Why are you depressed? That's the starting point. So here's what we're going to do today for depression. I'm going to give you some reasons why people get depressed in the Bible. And then I'm going to give you three things that I think will help you no matter the reason why you're depressed. They'll help you get through it. Okay? So let's go. Reason number one that the Bible gives that you can be depressed, flip back just a couple of chapters to Psalm 32. Psalm of David. David, if you read the Psalms, dude went through some serious depression at times. Listen to what he says. Psalm 32. Verse three. When I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. My brother used to get into these depressions and he would sleep a ton and he would tell me this, Matt, like my body hurts. Like the very joints, the, 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 the connective tissue, just, my body just aches, kind of like David here. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He couldn't get out of bed either. I'm just exhausted. So why is David depressed in Psalm 32? I'll read verse five. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to Yahweh and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Why? Sin. If you know his story, he had committed adultery and he had murdered somebody. And he was sitting under the weight of that guilt and that sin and it made him depressed. I think this here is good depression. That this is a gift from God. Don't keep hurting yourself. You're depressed for a good reason right now. Deal with it. Get it done with. Confess your sin. Be forgiven. And stop sinning so you don't hurt yourself anymore. Pretty simple. So when you ask the question, why am I depressed? You might look at, is there sin? Because sin can make you depressed. Number one. Number two. And this is probably one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. It's very broad. It's very big. Story of Jacob with his 12 boys and kind of what happens with them. So Jacob has a favorite son. It's called Joseph. He gives him this really pretty coat. And um, one day he sends Joseph out to go to his brothers. Uh, his brothers bring back his bloodied coat. And so here's what happens to Jacob in this situation, the dad. It's chapter 37, verse 33. So sometimes circumstances can make you depressed. 37, 33. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Jacob is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob, Joseph, is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol or my grave to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. So Jacob here says, you're not gonna comfort me. I'm gonna be depressed until I die. And he's crying, right? Well, circumstances don't get any better for him. In fact, they get worse. There's this bad famine. He sends his remaining boys, 10 of them, down to Egypt to get some food. They get some food. When they come back, they say, listen, we can't go back down there unless we bring our youngest son, your youngest son, Benjamin, who is now Jacob's favorite son since Joseph was dead. So here's what happens. They have to go back. They say, we're going to take with us Benjamin, and Jacob freaks out. Skip forward to chapter 42, verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. 
Joseph is no more. He's dead. Simeon is no more. He's dead. And now you're going to take Benjamin. All this or the entire world is against me. Deep, deep depression. It's been really bad in the back and I'm seeing more bad things coming. What next, God? You've killed Joseph. You've killed Simeon. And now is Benjamin next? Circumstances were so overwhelming to him that all he saw was bad stuff. So what do you do to somebody in this situation? Here's what I say. Here's my technique. I say it's gospel and time. Gospel and time. Like some people, there's just hard times. It's just simply, this is hard. I'm just going to give you the gospel. Then we got to wait a little while, and I'm going to give you some more of the gospel, and we got to wait a little while. And that's what happens to Joseph. The, the sun does rise. Joseph's not dead, Simeon's not dead, and Benjamin does not die. In fact, they're all alive, and things turn out brilliantly, but it takes 17 years, okay? And so at the end of it, here's what Joseph says about that entire story. He says, Genesis 50, 20, what you guys meant for evil, God has turned to good for the saving of many lives. Sometimes we just got to wait for the gospel to shine through and for Genesis 50 to happen. Sometimes it just takes time, okay? Now, I felt like Joseph Jacob, excuse me, at one point in my life, where just circumstances overwhelmed me. It was back when Edgewater first started. Church was just a couple months old, and my mom was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And we were told, hey, you got some years, it's, it's okay. She died five weeks later. Like, it was just a stunning thing for me because she's healthy. Uh, she always took care of herself, ate really well, exercised, did everything right. 62, she's dead. So that was, wow, Lord. Five months later, my older brother was in an automobile accident, and he died. And I remember feeling just like Jacob. What next, God? Like, what next? What are you going to do next? Like, I felt like freaking out and buying like 40 acres in Wolf Creek and like moving my family there and building a fence around it. Like, I can control this. I can't control any of this stuff out there. This is too much for me. It felt like that. And I explained it to people like this. I said, when, when things like this happen to you, it's like an earthquake. Like if you've ever known what happens in an earthquake, a big earthquake hits and there are still these buildings that are standing and they look like, hey, that's a perfectly good building. But structurally, they're done. And it just takes a little tremor and they fall over. I said, there was a period of time of my life I was just like that. This massive thing happened to me and then just the littlest thing would set me off. A conversation a memory, whatever, would just work my soul. And here's what helped me. Here's what was brilliant in my process where God redeemed it. We got out of town, took my family, we left. While I was gone, a group from church here, they got together. They went to my house. They mowed the lawns. They pruned the trees. They cleaned my swimming pool. They fixed my swimming pool. They um, did everything. We did the garden, planted the garden. Like, it was brilliant. I came home, I could not believe it. They poured concrete steps in front of my study. They're still there. Ten years later, every time I walk into my study, guess what? I smile because I'm reminded of people that loved me and met me in a really dark time. If you're not investing in community now, there will be circumstances that overtake your life. And if you have not invested in community, when you need them the most, they won't be there. Invest in community now. It matters. They will rally around you, and it's brilliant, okay? So sometimes, depression can be circumstances, number two. Number three, and this is by far my favorite story of depression, it's Elijah. Elijah, probably the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, brilliant man, has real deep depression. Listen to this. You can turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. I'll just read the quote. He talks to God, this is what he says to God. First Kings 19.4. Elijah, great prophet, miracle worker. He says this, it is enough now, O Yahweh, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. I love that. Kill me, God. I'm a failure. Just like my dad was a failure, and just like my grandpa was a failure, we are a family of failures, so just kill me. You ever felt that way? Like there's this generational curse on you, like this is what my dad did, and it happened to him, and now it's happened to me. Oh, great. That's exactly what Elijah is. We're just a bunch 
of failures. So God, just kill me. Now, why is he feeling that way? He's actually disenfranchised with God. Here's what's happened to him. In chapter 17 of 1 Kings, he goes, marches into the king's throne room and says, listen, because of the evil stuff you brought into Israel, it's not going to rain for three and a half years. And marches out. It does not rain for three and a half years. Brutal time in Israel, right? After three and a half years, he comes back out of hiding and says, I challenge all the prophets of Baal to a duel. Okay? The prophets or the, the, the gods of Baal, there's a group of them, they controlled the weather, they controlled fertility, they're in control of all this stuff. God, by not making it rain, was saying, no, they're not in control of that. He says, let's go to the top of this mountain, Mount Carmel, and let's have a duel. We'll make two altars. You pray to Baal, and you see if he brings down fire, lightning, whatever it was, and starts your sacrifice on fire, and then I'll do it. Well, the duel goes. It doesn't happen for Baal. Elijah prays a simple prayer. Fire comes down, burns everything, including the stones and some water. Just unbelievable, right? So he defeats the 450 prophets of Baal. Then he sits down, he prays seven times. It starts to rain. He is so excited, so stoked by all this, that guess what he does? He runs a marathon. I guess nuts to me. He gets all happy, I'm gonna run a marathon. That's not what I do. When I get happy, I'm like, I should read a book. Not running, So he runs this marathon, runs into the city of Samaria, gets there, and he is expecting revival. Like, this is it, God. This is what I've been working for for three and a half years. Finally, it's going to happen. Guess what happens instead? Well, it's verse 2 of chapter 19. Then Jezebel, she's the queen, she's really the power source, sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the one of them like you killed those prophets by this time tomorrow. Jezebel says, I'm killing you. There's a price on your head. I'm going to kill you in the next 24 hours. So now he's really sad. Guess what he does when he's really sad? He runs another marathon. Like he's a mixed up puppy. So he's run two marathons. He ends up in this kind of desert area underneath a bush, and he's saying, God, kill me. Kill me, God. Life isn't worth living. So here's what happens. Look at verse 5. And he lay down, and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake. What kind of cake do you think it was? Angel food cake, right? It's an angel. What do they cook? Obviously. Baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down. And the angel of Yahweh came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. I love this. Angel shows up to a very depressed man, suicidal. And what does the angel say to him? I bring you glad tidings of good joy. No, right? There'd be a fight right there. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Uh-uh. Repent from all your sinfulness. Okay, Elijah, you know, it's been a tough three and a half years. Do you want to talk about it? Let's talk. He doesn't do any of that. What does he do? You need some good food and a nap, right? That's it. You need some good food. It's exactly what I do to Myron, my two-year-old, when he's all upset. You need some good food and you need a nap. Why? He just ran two marathons. Dude, your problem right now is, yes, you're disenfranchised with me, but part of it's physical. You are so upset because you ran two marathons and you need a nap. I love how God is. He is so different from us. He's so different from how we treat people in depression. We start going after like their spirituality. Have you been reading your Bible? Have you been praying enough? Is there unconfessed sin in your life? You just need to learn to count your blessings. One, two, three, four, five, six. Come on. The angel does not do that to Elijah. Bro, you need a good meal and you need to take a nap. That's what you need. This is physical right now. Yeah, there's disenfranchisement with God. But sometimes it's just physical. Go to sleep. You need to sleep. You need some good food. It's that simple. I talk to people that are depressed, and I always tell them, get as much information as you can. If it's medical, go talk to a medical doctor. Go talk to a holistic doctor. Man, go talk to your crazy uncle that did move to Wolf Creek and has 400 acres and has herbs and essential oils. Talk to him. Get all of it, because I don't know, man. It's broader than just this simplistic idea. Sometimes it is purely physical, and you need some physical 
thing. And here's what I love best about Elijah. This divine cure did not cure him because after 40 days, he gets depressed again. So he's number four as well. He's disenfranchised with God. God, your plan, I thought it was going to work out this certain way. It didn't. It said, I'm going to be killed. And then so God helps him, and yet he goes back. Sometimes depression comes back. Sometimes it comes back. It does with Elijah. So look what happens. Verse 9. And there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him. And he said to him, what, listen to this question, what are you doing, Elijah? What did God ask Elijah? What are you doing? Okay, listen to what Elijah says. He said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I, am alone. I am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Did he answer God? What are you doing, Elijah? Rant, 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 right? What's happening? He's been cycling in his head in this cave, just waiting for his opportunity. And so when God asks him this question, he doesn't answer the question. He goes way over here. So this is what God does to him. Okay, bud. Okay. He does this. Verse 11. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces and rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him that said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Same question, right? Doesn't change this question at all. I still want to know that. So what God does is he tries to get Elijah out of his head. Look at all this crazy stuff. I'm going to ask you the same question again. Elijah, what are you doing here in this cave? Listen to his answer. I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, am alone left, and they seek my life to take it away. What's Elijah's answer? Exactly the same. (laughs) What's Elijah's problem here? He's very self-absorbed. He's only stuck in his head. Sometimes I think we're depressed because we are depressed. Like, I'm so depressed. We're not supposed to get depressed. Oh, this makes me more depressed. Sometimes I think we get sad because we are sad. Like, I'm not supposed to be sad. Why am I so sad? I'm even sadder because I was sad, right? We get upset because we are upset. Like, why am I upset? I'm not supposed to be upset. This is what's happening to Elijah. He's just stuck in his head. He's just rolling this thing around over and over and over. You ever talk to somebody in depression that's just like this? Like you will share with them and it's just like they keep going back. You share, like, oh, it happens to me all the time. You just can't break them out of it. They are so stuck in their own head, their own issue, you cannot break them out of it. So here's what God does. He twice, tries twice with questions. All these kind of signs doesn't help Elijah. So then he's like, okay, bud, three things. Here's what you do. Number one, he says this. Go, verse 15, return on your way. Number one, he says this, get out of this cave. You can't stay in this cave anymore. It's really bad for you. Get out of the cave. I think sometimes we have to say to depressed people, get out of your room. Get out of your house. You can't stay here anymore. It's not good for you. You're just cycling over these same things over and over and over again, and it's destroying your very soul. Get out of your house. Get out of your room. Go for a walk. Go for a jog. Do something. You can't stay here anymore. It's not healthy for you. That was number one. Got to try these other methods. That ain't working. Get out. Number one. Number two. When you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. Number two, you got purpose. Be useful. Break out of this cave and be useful. Go do something for someone else. I have mission for you. I have a plan. This whole thing, Jezebel doing her thing, didn't catch me off guard, God would say. I still have a plan. Don't worry about it. And you're useful in my plan. I tell people that are depressed, come here to Fruitdale on Monday, fill out an application and say, I want to come here and I want to teach kids to read. Anyone can do that with a second grader. I just want to listen to them read and say, no, that word is pronounced like this. Just go do that. 
Get out of your own head, get out of your own room, and go help somebody, number two. Number three, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mehalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will not leave, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Number three, get a buddy. Genesis 2 is still the same. It is not good for man to be alone. You are stuck in your head. You're thinking this certain way. You need Elisha to come alongside you. And you know this, there are 7,000. You're not alone. There are 7,000 that are just like you. I think one of the best things that can happen for depressed people is to get around the people of God. You're not alone in this. Hey, I know what it's like. Hey, I've been there. I think what can happen in this place is unbelievable at times. That we can have 1 Corinthians 14, 25 of a truth God's in this place. And he can touch and heal you in a moment that I don't think happens anywhere else. It happens in the assembly of the believers. There's 7,000 that have not bowed the knee. So fourthly, you can just be so self-centered, you get depressed. You get stuck in your own head, rolling over and over and over why things are the certain way, and you need someone outside to break you out of that. And that's what God does here. Fifthly, I do believe there are spiritual forces that can cause people to be depressed. So we're teaching through the gospel of Matthew right now. On Wednesday night, you're invited. I I keep telling people this. It's been a while since I've taught the gospels. And I keep saying, Jesus is so brilliant. Like, I should know that as a pastor. Like, wow, he's just brilliant. So we're in the Sermon on the Mount right now. Come out. It is a unbelievable sermon. Like, I just think, oh my goodness, I'm so unworthy to even talk about this sermon. It's so brilliant. It's so, it, it just breaks everything down that you thought and rebuilds it in a way that's beautiful. Okay? So we taught through Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4 is where Jesus takes on Satan. Now, how does Satan attack Jesus? A1 Abram's tank? ISIS? No, how does Satan attack Jesus? Words. Speaking words into the mind of Jesus. That's how, it, that's how the attack was. It's the same attack that happens with you and me. That there are demons and there are spirit beings that will whisper things into your brain. You're lazy. Just like your dad. Just like your grandpa. Your whole family's been lazy. You're never going to break out of this thing. You don't deserve love. Because of what you did, your sin back there, you're never going to have a family. You're never going to have kids. You're never going to have a spouse. Are you kidding me? You don't deserve that. Just kill yourself. You ever heard those words? Pay attention to the pronouns. Because I can self-talk sometimes, like, ah, oh, man, I'm so miserable. Ah, oh, man, I did that again. But a lot of times the enemy comes with you. You are. It's from an outside voice. And when that's happening, look out. It's powerful. It can lead to depression, problems, suicide. So what do we do? Read Matthew. Podcast that message. I go through it. This is what Jesus does. It is written. He uses God's word. Right? Rebukes him. We have been given the power. We are not... We are not of the kingdom of darkness. We are the kingdom of light. Greater is he that's within us than he that's in the world. All they can do is speak lies to you, and it takes no faith to believe a demon. You have to come back to faith and say, I don't believe that. That's not what the Bible says. I refuse that. And then you keep around Jesus stuff. The way you protect yourself is you just keep around Jesus stuff. I'm not worried about that stuff because I, you know, I don't go places where there's a lot of demonic behavior. I don't do things that begin to invite them. I'm not putting my antenna up. I'm not saying it can't happen to me. Happen to Jesus who is sinless, I'm just saying, I'm not giving him more opportunity. So you can podcast that if you want. So there is spiritual. So the Bible, it's not thin on this. It's very thick. Hey, it can happen because of sin. It can happen because you're disappointed with God. It can happen because of circumstances in life. It can happen because you become very self-centered, or it can be spiritual. So you can go back to that question, Psalm 42.5. My soul, why are you disquieted? What's going on inside of me? You ask that question. And I don't care which one of those it is, I think there are three things that will help you through depression. Quickly, number one, honesty. Turn with me and you've got to read this psalm with me. It's Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is the most unique psalm of all 150. There is no other psalm like it. 
It stands alone. So I'm going to read this psalm for you and see if you can pick out why it's so unique. The psalm is written by, if you have a little note above it, it's written by, guess who? He-Man. Anybody know who He-Man is? Best cartoon, after school, three o'clock. He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, right? So he wrote this psalm. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Verse one. O Yahweh, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol, or the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of this pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Yahweh. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your faithfulness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Yahweh, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Yahweh, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. If you weren't depressed when you came in, you probably are now. It's the darkest psalm. Most psalms follow this pattern. They, they start out with, God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you at? What's happening? And then they end with, oh, God, I love you so much. Right? Not Psalm 98. It's the only psalm in the Bible that is all negative, all dark. Right? This is verse 18. It's unbelievable. You have caused my beloved. Who's his beloved? It's man's wife. You have caused my wife and my friend to shun me. It's your fault that she's left me. My only companion now has become darkness. It's like a Lady Gaga song or something. Like just dark. It's like, wow, bro, you need a hug or something. It's a brutal, brutal psalm. He, he just says in verse 15, afflicted and close to death from my youth up. From the time I was born, it feels like you're trying to kill me. Your wrath, you must hate me, God, because your wrath is against me. It's swept over me. Your dreadful assaults are there. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them. Like you read this and you're like, wow, it sounds blasphemous. When you read it, it sounds like this dude should be struck by lightning, but he's not. So why is it in the canon? This one slip in? It's got like, oh, who was my editor? My goodness. How in the world did that one get in there? We could have split one if we wanted 150 to be like a you know, an uh, even number, I could have found another one, but why in the world Psalm 88? Oh, great. No. There's a reason why it's in here. Because there are stages to the Christian walk. And there's a stage when you first get saved, and it's amazing. I call it the honeymoon stage. Where it's like every message from church is for you. You're like, how in the world did you know that? That's exactly what I needed to hear. Thank you. When you drive to work in the morning, you turn on the radio, and it's exactly the thing you were thinking about at breakfast. Like, oh my goodness, NSA must be following me, because this is amazing. Right? You read the Bible, and it just jumps off the page at you, and you're like, yes, yes, yes. You sneeze, and someone says, God bless you. You're like, oh, he has, thank you, right? 
It's just that time. But it doesn't always stay that way. Sometimes, probably in most of our lives, there will be a Psalm 88 time where you say, Lord, what's up? Why is it so dark? Why is it so hard? Why does it feel like you don't hear me? Why does it feel like you don't care for me? Why does it feel like you have shunned me? Why does it feel like you caused my wife to leave me? Why does it feel like you caused all my friends to leave me? Why does it feel like the only friend I have is darkness? Sometimes, that's authentic Christianity. And so God keeps it in Scripture. You know why? Because he says to you and me, I'm safe. You don't have to pretend around me. You don't have to be a smiley face, jack-in-the-box Christian. You don't have to be that way with me. You can pour everything out to me because I'm your God, not because you are happy and smiley and rejoicing every day. I am your God because I purchased you on the cross of Jesus Christ and I'm gonna keep you no matter what. So don't be fake with me. I already know your heart. That's why it's here. It's my favorite psalm in the entire book because of that. Because God is saying, I am so faithful to you, Matt. You be honest with me and you don't worry about it. You can talk to me. I'm your father, and I love you, and I'm going to keep you no matter what. You be honest with me. You pour out your heart to me because I can handle it. I already know what's going on inside of you anyways. Pour it out. Get it out of you. That's why this psalm is here. It's brilliant. Number one, you be honest. Number two, you got to have hope. In depression, you have to have hope. Proverbs 13, 12 says this, a hope deferred makes the heart sick. That if you don't have hope, it can actually affect your health. Here's a book if you want to read it. It's brilliant. It's by Viktor Frankl, and it's called Man's Search for Meaning. It is. It was written 60 years ago, and yet you can find it in any any bookstore. It's that brilliant of a book. Like Everyone still reads it. It's amazing. So Viktor Frankl is now a, well, he's not alive anymore. He was a psychologist who went through the Holocaust in a death camp. And while he's in the death camp, he is just kind of analyzing things and he's making all these just, they're brilliant observations. You're like, man, this dude is brilliant. Brilliant. Here's one of them. He had this warden and he was a prisoner, but he was kind of overseeing their building. There's like a thousand people in this building. It's just a death camp. And there's a thousand people in it. And this warden has this dream. He's a prisoner. He has this dream that the war's going to be over March 30th. And he begins to tell everybody, it's a divine dream. The war's going to be over March 30th. As the time approaches, everyone begins to realize, no, war is not going to be over March 30th. On March 29th, this warden got sick with a fever. On March 30th, he was unconscious. And on March 31st, he was dead. Why? A hope deferred makes heart sick. So here's what Viktor Frankl says. He says, what happened is, the hope he had, he was holding on to this hope, and it gave him power and life. And once he lost that hope, like his body just gave up the ability to fight infection and he was dead like that. You gotta have hope. So out of that, it comes one of Viktor Frankl's most famous sayings and he says this, and I quote, life only has meaning if you have a hope and a meaning that suffering and death cannot destroy. And he's the guy that went through the death camp. He said, listen, life only has meaning if you have a hope and a meaning that suffering and death cannot destroy. If you don't have that, ooh, look out. And he actually gives all these examples in his book. Do you have that kind of hope? Do you have a hope and a meaning for your life that it doesn't matter what circumstances come, it doesn't matter how hard things are, it doesn't matter how difficult it, co- it, it becomes, that you know this is my hope and you cannot destroy it? Because as believers, we're supposed to. Our hope is this. That one day, one day, heaven invades earth. That right now, this is just chapter one, that's all it is. And it's a brilliant, beautiful chapter full of joy and full of sorrow, full of good, full of bad, hope and hardship, all that kind of stuff. But guess what? This is just chapter one. That we never say, man, this is the end of the world. Why? Because our world is so much bigger. It's never the end of the world. It's just the end of this chapter. And then I move into the next chapter where heaven, Revelation 21, invades earth and all that is evil and all that is wrong and all that is sinful is swallowed up and cast into the lake of fire and it's gone forever. And you and I live in the way that we are designed to live with righteousness and peace and joy. That's the hope I have. And once you have that hope, you're bulletproof. 
It can endure through any suffering and any death. Oh, come on, Matt. That's that pie-in-the-sky thinking that Christians do, and it's worthless. Okay? Let me challenge you on that. Imagine two people, two ladies. They have the same job, dead-end job, terrible job, brutal job. Their boss is a tyrant, Hitler reincarnated, okay? As bad of a job as you can imagine. One of the ladies is promised, listen, if you'll stick this job out for five years, we'll give you 100 bucks. The second lady is promised, listen, if you'll stick this job out for five years, we'll give you five million bucks. Will that hope change how they work every single day in that terrible job? Oh, absolutely, undeniably. See, we already know it to be true. It's just the enemy wants to rip us off from it. And you have to choose to say, I will believe that that is my destiny. I will believe that that is my hope. I will know that what God has already showed me is just a trailer, just a sneak preview of what is coming for those that love him and believe in him. You got to have a hope. Then lastly and finally, you have to be a heralder. That word herald, it just simply means, in the, in the Bible, it means someone that preaches the gospel. You have to be someone that preaches the gospel to yourself. Remember the psalm I started with, Psalm 42.5, where David is listening to his soul. Hey, soul, what's up with you? He doesn't stop there. Do you know that? I think depression sometimes hits us because we spend too much time listening to our soul and we never speak back to our soul. So he goes to the next step. He says, hope in God, he preaches to his soul. Hey, I've listened to you. I've kind of looked at, evaluated my life, and now it's time for me to make my point. Soul, you're believing a lie. Soul, you're off place. Soul, you're wrong. We have to be those that are constantly heralding the gospel to ourselves. What does that look like? I mean, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to be Stuart Smalley? Who knows who Stuart Smalley is? I got to get a new one. So Stuart Smalley, Saturday Night Live, was a guy that would look at himself in the mirror. Remember that? He'd be like, I am good enough. I am smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like me. Right? Tea time with Stuart Smalley. Just hilarious. So anyways, it worked for him because he's like a senator now, like Al Franken. Somehow it changed him. It's not that. We don't sit there and speak to ourselves these things. Like that doesn't work, does it? You can tell yourself you're great over and over and over. It doesn't really matter. You need someone else to tell you that. When your boss tells you that or your wife tells you that or a friend tells you that or a neighbor tells you that, man, that has power, right? When someone else tells you. It's a hundred, a thousand times more powerful. Okay, I, I turn in papers all the time for a school. I can grade my own paper like, hey, plus, Matt, that was brilliant thought. That doesn't really help me. But when one of my professors that I admire says, great thought, Matt. Oh my goodness. That's a thousand times more powerful. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have to take in the gospel with that understanding. The God of the universe, the sustainer of life itself, the designer, the king says to you and me, you're my precious beloved son. You are my precious beloved daughter. That nothing can separate you from my love. I don't care what you do, I will always welcome you back like a prodigal and I will throw a robe around you and a ring on your finger and shoes on your feet and I will throw a party for you because I love you and I'm your heavenly father. You have to preach that gospel to yourself. That his love for me is not based upon how I'm feeling today, if I'm moody or not. His love for me is based upon the cross of Calvary, the unchanging nature of Jesus Christ and that is why it's so solid. You got to preach that to yourself. It's powerful when you receive it from God. You have to know this. Jesus went through unbelievable depression. Do you know that? Read Matthew 26, 38. He says to his disciples, I am despairing of life itself. Because of what he knew was coming, circumstances, Jesus says, I want to die right now. So he says to you and me, as we pour out our soul to him, Psalm 88, he says, I know. I know and I love you. And I will walk with you. And I will shape you. And I will change you through these circumstances. And I will make you more brilliant. That I'll give you double for your shame, Isaiah 62. That I'll take the the burnt out remains of your life and I'll give you beauty for it. That's what God says to you and me. 
You have to preach the gospel to yourself. It's so powerful. It changes you. You gotta have a hope. You gotta be honest. You gotta be a heralder. And I would say this today. If you came in here and you're depressed and you're feeling under the weight of all that kind of stuff, sometimes you need someone else to break in. Sometimes you need, like Elijah needed with God. Jesus actually invites three of his boys along with him when he was despairing of death. Hey, come with me. Pray with me. I need you around me. Sometimes we need other people. So I want to make this offer. If you came in here and you feel under the weight of depression for whatever reason, get prayed for. So I'll be up here. Some Titus two ladies will be up here. Elders, pastors, deacons, their wives. We'd love to pray for you because sometimes that's what it takes. It takes, like Elijah, someone on the outside speaking these words into you, a force on the outside that breaks you out of it so that you can begin to get back to the life that God has for you, usefulness, purposefulness, the good works that he prepared in advance for you. Sometimes it takes somebody else, so we'd love to pray for you. Give us that opportunity. Give yourself that opportunity, okay? So, Father, thank you for tough topics. Thank you how thick the Bible is. Thank you how great your love is for us. That you pursue the Elijahs when they're running from you. You pursue the prodigals when they're sinning against you. You're such a good God. I pray for any in here, Lord, that might be overwhelmed by circumstances. I pray that they would take comfort in the great hope that we have that you can take all things and you can work them together for good for those that love you and are called according to your purposes, even hard circumstances. For those that are disenfranchised with, Lord, your ways, I pray that this day they would know you are on the throne and you have a plan that's good and it's right and it terminates when heaven invades earth and all that is evil and sick and wrong is cast into the lake of fire. I pray those, for those that are in here that are depressed because of sin, may they confess and be cleansed. And may you cure them from that sinful desire, giving them hearts that desire your will and your way. For those that are under spiritual oppression, Lord, from the enemy, I pray that this day they would cease believing the lies and start believing the truth of what your word says about them they are precious in your sight, that they are robed and clothed in righteousness, that you would say to them, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased, that they have been accepted into the beloved, brought in as sons and daughters to be future kings and queens ruling with you for eternity. May, Lord, we believe the truth of Scripture and stop believing the lies of the enemy. So do a good work, Lord, I pray, in each heart this day. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.